0: Today on the show, with our pugs tucked safely in our jackets and our PlayStation mm. Two armor fully powered up, <laughs> we're charging headlong into the first finished Dune movie adaptation. Yeah. By a guy named Alan Smithy. I don't know this guy's work, dude. <laughs> Alan Smithy.
1: Alan I don't, Smithy. Sounds, yeah, he has a lot of movies under. <laughs> I think. <laughs> oh, it's David Lynch, and he's embarrassed. <laughs> oh, I see. I see. <laughs> Welcome to Gom Jabbar, your guide to the iconic world of Dune. We'll be exploring the themes, philosophies, and characters found in the sandy depths of this vast universe. From Frank Herbert's groundbreaking novels to the adaptations on film and TV. My name is Leo. And my name's Abu. And today on the show...
0: Oh boy, oh boy. Okay,
1: we're doing it. Good lord, we heard <laughs> you. Okay, David Lynch, 1984 Mm Mm-hmm. The first film adaptation of Dune that got made.
0: We're doing it. We're finally talking about it today. It's a little criminal that we've gone over 100 episodes (laughs) and two, almost three years of this podcast without doing an episode on this movie. We literally covered Jodorowsky's attempt before we talked about this movie. (laughs) Yeah. It's high time we do it today. True. We've punted this for quite some time, but this is perhaps one of our most requested episodes. It is. Listeners like Armin Ava, Maya B, Jim, mm-hmm. countless others who we don't have time to list <laughs> have written into us over the years requesting that we talk about David Lynch and his iconic <laughs> infamous Do infamous. That's a better word. His infamous Dune adaptation from 1984. So today's the day.
1: Yeah. And you know what? It, thank you all for the recommendation. We're going to talk about it today. We have a lot of feelings about it. And I also will put out there that we got at least one request to be kind <laughs> when we talk yeah. about it. Yeah. I don't know that we can fulfill that today, but only because we're coming at it from a Dune analysis perspective and not a like nostalgia or film appreciation or like art appreciation angle. Right. Anyway, getting too far into it already. So let's take <laughs> care of our, let's make shout-out Mapes proud, Indeed. as we are so <laughs> wont to say, uh, and take care of our housekeeping.
0: That's right. And first up, a spoiler warning for today's episode. Right. As long as you've read the first book, as long as you know the story of Dune by Frank Herbert, which this film allegedly adapts, <laughs> then you should be good for today.
1: Yeah. In fact, if you've read Dune by Frank Herbert, you might actually also hate this movie because it's <laughs> not an adaptation of that book. Uh, as always, the best way to support what we do here at Gamja Bar is to become a patron over at patreon.com forward slash Jabbar. You get things like ad-free episodes, weekly bloopers. You get cut content and early access to episodes like this. Mm -hmm. If you're hearing this on the public feed, oh, it's been months.
0: Oh, we've (laughs) talked about this is old news, folks. We've talked about. We
1: are recording this in 1847. So if you're hearing that in the public feed, that's how long you had to wait. Sorry about that's it. That's right. Become a patron.
0: <laughs> and as always, a huge shout out to our Queezats Hatterack level patrons, Case Aiken, Matthew Good, gents. Yeah. When we adapt your lives into a film, we <laughs> yeah. promise to cast Sting in both of your roles.
1: Yeah. Oh, Sweet. And he just has all of his outfits are different bikini cod
0: pieces. (laughs) A hundred percent. I mean, that's what Case and Matthew wear, I hear, from what what I'm told. (laughs) Yeah. So that that part will be accurate. (laughs) It will be accurate. (laughs) Indeed.
1: Thank you, guys. And thank you to all of our patrons. Seriously, you make what we do possible. Yes. Thank you so much. Now, another great way to support the show is to check out our merchandise at Mm gomjabarshop.com. We have custom-designed Dune stuff. Mm -hmm. I got my grubby little mitts on some of it, uh, and it's all wonderful. We really enjoy it. There's apparel, there's art, there's mugs, all sorts of fun stuff. So check that out. It's another great way to support what we do.
0: That's right. And to wrap up housekeeping, one last reminder that we love to hear from you. So send us your thoughts at Gamjabar Podcast at gmail.com. Indeed. That's how this episode got created, because y'all requested it. We want to hear your thoughts on the film as well. Many of you have shared, frankly, really heartfelt stories about your like dads when you were kids taking you to this film back in the day, and that's how you were introduced to Dune. And it's all very great stuff. And we love to receive those messages, and we do our best to reply to them within... 365 days
1: i responded to an email recently that had it was at seven months and i was like congratulations and also i'm sorry in equal measure (laughs) yes but we will respond to you i promise we do not disregard any emails that's right just part of the problem (laughs) maybe we should okay the uh, game plan for today's episode Mm -hmm. this is what we're gonna do we actually took some time to dig up some production details about the movie that you may not know. Yeah. I didn't know some of this stuff. Yeah. And honestly, almost makes it better because I know how much shit was going wrong. That would explain why the movie is kind of a mess. Right. So that's going to be good. We've got some production details, a lot of stuff you might not know. We're going to share some things that we liked about it. (laughs) We're going to try and we're going to share some things that we didn't like about it. We're going to hold back. (laughs) And and then finally, we're going to wrap up by discussing our favorite scenes, ending on as positive a note as possible. Indeed. Indeed. But before we do that, we're going to take a quick break. So stick around. When we're back, we're going to, oh, we're going to talk about this movie. (laughs) We'll be right back.
0: Welcome back, everyone. Let's start off our discussion today by talking about some of the production details of this movie. Because it's truly fascinating, the journey to December 14th, 1984, when David Lynch's Dune adaptation was finally released to the world. Yeah. There is a lot of (laughs) hurdles and hula hoops and mountains to climb before we get to that point. Yeah. Now, Lynch's film to say the least, is divisive. Right. And despite all its flaws, it is interesting learning a bit more about this production history and the journey of getting the film made because, as you said in our opening, it does put into context perhaps some of why the film ended up the way it did in regards to where it falls short as an adaptation. Right. So to rewind the clock, to be clear... A Dune adaptation had been bouncing around for a while. Yeah, there were a number of attempts to take the IP, to take this best-selling, incredible book by Frank Herbert. Yeah, and bring it to the big screen. Back in mid 1971, for example, the production rights were obtained by someone named Arthur P. Jacobs, who among many things, has produced *Planet of the Apes. I don't know if anyone's ever heard of that little avant-garde film. Yeah. The whole,
1: the, the all of those original movies. Incredible. Like, it's wild. Yeah. His filmography is nuts.
0: Yeah. So, really talented guy. He got his hands on the production rights for Dune. Yeah. But sadly, he never got to make the film, of course. Right. He died due to a heart attack in 1973 at only 51 years old. Yeah. So, we'll never know what he would have done with the franchise.
1: Honestly, let's just pause for a second. It would have been fucking awesome. Yeah. <laughs> like you think about the scope of Planet of the Apes. Yeah. It's what a, g- a great series.
0: Yeah. There's an alternate timeline where that Dune movie exists and it's great.
1: Yeah. Agreed. Now in, in 1974, and we've talked a little bit about this. The rights reverted and then were picked up by a French consortium with hmm. Jodorowsky. Hello. Jodorowsky. Jodorowsky. Jodor- 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 him. Uh, behind the director's wheel, and these efforts fell apart for so many reasons. <laughs> Salvador Dali was involved. <laughs> the
0: Mick Jagger was in the movie. Mick Jagger was in the or movie. Cast in it at least, yeah.
1: Orson Welles was going to be in the movie. Right, right. Anyway, insane. There is a documentary on Jodorowsky's Dune, and it's worth watching if you're a fan of Dune. Yeah. We did a whole podcast episode about it, so feel free to watch that movie and then listen to what we had to say about it. Yeah. But it didn't work. It didn't happen. It fell apart.
0: Fell apart. Didn't happen. Right. So two years later, now we're in 1976, a producer named Dino De Laurentiis bought the rights from Jodorowsky's consortium and then, get this, commissioned Frank Herbert himself <laughs> to write a screenplay. Yeah. And Frank did. That's crazy. (laughs) Frank wrote a screenplay for what could have been an adaptation of his book into movie form. Yeah. Unfortunately, it was a 175-page script, and De Laurentiis was like, no, this isn't going to work. It seems pretty obvious that Frank is a book writer and probably wasn't exactly a stellar screenplay writer. right? And so that original script was never turned into a film.
1: I am so curious. <laughs> I am so fucking curious what is in that screenplay. Yeah. Yeah. But this leads us to 1979. And at this point, a very familiar name to sci-fi fans everywhere gets involved.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah.
1: Ridley Scott. Woo! <laughs> huh! Mm! Gets the gets the nerd juices flowing. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah. Just <laughs> letting you know about that, what's happening below the camera, right? <laughs> but uh Ridley Scott was brought on to to direct with this guy Rudy Wurlitzer writing and adapting the script into what was going to be two movies so they said this is a very big story obviously (laughs) Frank himself couldn't make it a digestible single film so we're gonna do two movies and after about seven months Ridley Scott dropped the project Mm. and there is a quote from Ridley Scott talking about this that I found in a 1999 book, um, about Ridley Scott's career. And he said in that book that quote, by then Rudy Wurlitzer had come up with a first draft script, which I felt was a decent distillation of Frank Herbert's book. But I also realized Dune was going to take a lot more work, at least two and a half years worth and I didn't have the heart to attack that because my older brother, Frank, unexpectedly died of cancer while I was prepping the De Laurentiis picture. Mm. Frankly, that freaked me out. So I went to Dino and I told him the Dune script was his. End quote.
0: Ah, uh, wow.
1: Which, you know, that makes sense. Like, yeah. you're, you're signing on to direct a two and a half year endeavor and you have this crazy loss in your family. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. It's it's unfortunate. but also we have reason to think that maybe that script is not (laughs)
0: so good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's another quote that you pulled up about this script. So in Brian Herbert's (laughs) book, dreamer of Dune, there's an excerpt. Right. And once we read this quote to y'all, I think we'll all be pretty happy that Ridley Scott backed out of this adaptation.
1: If nothing else, just so that it didn't happen. Right. Like I think Ridley Scott could have made this script as good as it could have been. Right. Right. <laughs> i'll leave it
0: that way right so here's the excerpt from dreamer of dune yeah quote the third draft of Rudolf Wurlitzer's screenplay included an incestuous relationship between paul <laughs> and jessica uh-huh. dad said he wasn't interested in any variation of this theme including one in which alia paul's sister as dad wrote in dune becomes his daughter as well appalled <laughs> Frank Herbert told Dino De Laurentis that Dune fans would never tolerate an incestuous relationship between their beloved characters, and De Laurentiis agreed. Yeah. End quote. No fucking kidding. Yikes. How do you
1: like? Okay, I'm now. I think that like maybe Ridley Scott just hadn't read Dune because he's like, I was looking at the script and he pretty much nailed it. And it's like, really?
0: Yikes. Yeah. Really?
1: Yeah. <laughs>
0: so true. So true. God. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know this guy Rudy. You know but it sounds like he wrote a shit script and <laughs> yeah. completely botched one of these characters. And I'm glad Frank pushed back on it and De La yeah. Rentes was like, yeah, I agree, bad take, bad take. But I'm also glad that that version of the script, because scripts go through many revisions. Maybe this was right, one right. of the versions. <laughs> I'm very glad that version never saw the light of day. Indeed. Burn it with fire.
1: <laughs> uh, maybe they did. <laughs> well, all of that brings us to 81. And... The rights are still in Dino's hands. Right. And uh, he approaches David Lynch who was a a pretty hot ticket item at the time because Eraserhead was kind of a big deal Mm -hmm. and he had another movie. I'm not as much of a film buff so I don't know. But there was another movie that he had done that Mm -hmm. people also really liked. And so he approached David Lynch with the proposal and amid other film offers so David Lynch was because he was kind of this hot ticket item. People were like hey do you want this? Do you want this? Do you want to direct this? Apparently, he was offered Return of the Jedi. Oh, no. Wow. Like, George Lucas was like, hey, I think you could make something really remarkable. Wow. Do you want to do it? And with no intention of accepting, he went to Skywalker Ranch and, like, had coffee. And, like, they had, like, whole meetings over it. And he said, there's no way. I'm I'm absolutely not interested in, like, sci-fi. And I'm just not interested.
0: Okay. And yet. (laughs) And yet. And he
1: hadn't even heard of Dune. But Hmm. when Dino approached him with this prospect, he read Dune and loved it. So he claims. (laughs) Right. Uh, So he agreed. He signed on and it was kind of a surprise. Now, he teamed up with Eric Berggren and Christopher DeVore, who had worked on his previous work So they they had worked together on the last, I think, two films that they had done. They had like all worked together as a trio. Yeah, that makes sense. But after six months, they parted ways due to basically having two very different ideas of what the movie should be. Like they got it to the point where there's like, okay, it's one of these two options and they couldn't agree. So they just split ways and Lynch kind of proceeded on his own. And this leads to five drafts, Mm -hmm. five whole drafts of the script which I just got to wonder, and we're still at here. (laughs) We're still here after five (laughs) drafts. But he had taken the idea of two films, two separate films covering the narrative of Dune and crammed it into just one monumentally big movie. Like that was going to run like three and a half, four hours. And in March, 1983, with everything approved, they began shooting. And (laughs) And this is where the shit that had been already hitting the fan right. began hitting the fan in <laughs> yeah. new remarkable quantities. Right. It's- it sounds like we're <laughs>
0: wrapping up this section by saying and then they went off to make the movie. Nope. No, this is where <laughs> false. <laughs> it only gets worse. Yeah. It's already been a roller coaster ride. The production of this film is a cyclone. Yeah. It's wild.
1: This is House Atreides has arrived on Arrakis. Oh, they made it there. Cool. Right. <laughs> Everything worked out from there. Yeah. 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 No, oh, yeah. We're still as into, it turns out at the start. Yeah.
0: So let's quickly talk about some of the production details of this film. To save money, they moved the production to Mexico City. Right. And there's so much to talk <laughs> about. Yeah. In regards to this production. And a lot of it comes from a New York Times article that we sourced. That we can't possibly cover every little weird thing that happens, but yeah. here yeah. are a couple of highlights that we want to throw out. Right. So again, from this New York Times article published on September 4th, 1983, this is what we're told about the production. They had to manually clear three square miles of rattlesnakes, scorpions, and plants. Right. That's tough. <laughs> yeah. RIP to the PAs on set. <laughs> the like seven who died. No. No. I don't think anybody <laughs> died, but it still sucks. That's a shitty job. Yeah. Shitty job. The power grid and telecommunications would fail regularly. <laughs> De Laurentiis is quoted as saying, quote, imagine making a picture like Dune with no electricity and one <laughs> telephone. End quote. Yeah. Sounds great. <laughs> Yikes. That sounds tough. We're also told that a thousand pounds of spaghetti was stuck in customs for three months. So what were they eating, I wonder?
1: You know, local food, probably.
0: (laughs) The article also explains how the plan was to use the bed of a volcano as a filming location for the film. Yeah, that sounds like
1: atmospheric and cool. Like, yeah. Yeah,
0: it sounds cool. But it turns out that that exact location happened to be a, quote, dump for the carcasses of dead dogs, Mm. end quote.
1: yikes (laughs) it's tough because there are so many living dogs in the movie that (laughs) it would look conspicuous
0: (laughs) no at least one member of the crew had to be flown back to the states due to an onset of internal bleeding cool and during the first month and a half of production the first 45 days quote 15% yeah, 15% of the crew was in the hospital, end quote. <laughs> Damn. Yeah. And that's just some of the highlights. There's much more to this production. Those are just some of the standout things that really seem to uh, hamper the production of this film. I mean, all movies are tough to make, right? Like every set has its oh. stories and its horror, horror story moments. This is just a series of unfortunate events, honestly.
1: Yeah. Written by Lemony Snicket. It's true. It, crazy. And it was really fun to read. You can find it. There's the, the article from September 4th, 1983 is out there and it's just glorious to like read through the chaos. But by September, despite all of these hurdles, they had wrapped production mm. and had over four hours of Dune on their hands. Like the finished amount of footage that they had was like four hours. David Lynch wanted the movie to be about three hours long, like the, his vision of the movie was three hours long. But the studio was like, that's way too fucking long, man. Like, that, you can't, that's not a movie length in 1983. Right. Now I feel like every fucking movie is four and a half hours long and requires an intermission. You know? Yeah. But back then, no, you can't do it. So they said just over two hours is your limit. So they had to cut these like giant swaths of the movie. Uh, This meant that they suddenly had to reshoot a bunch of stuff as well as add the constant whispered narration and constant like voiceover of like, he doesn't know that this thing is going to happen. Right. You know, like they had to add all of that because the movie didn't make any fucking sense when you cut out like 40% of it or whatever, right? Yeah. So they had to suddenly rework the way that the narrative is delivered right after all of those extensive cuts
0: and, and even then i also read that theaters handed out pamphlets with dune terms and definitions to moviegoers <laughs> uh-huh. so clearly the vo the additional reshoots all of this jumbling they had to do with the original script the original vision of what they shot still didn't make it clear enough that moviegoers could comprehend this film so theaters were like yeah printing out pamphlets of like (laughs) Muad'Dib equals Paul Atreides equals protagonist, you know, like definitions of terms. (laughs) If anyone has one of those pamphlets from like, oh my God, the original time they went as a kid or something, please email that to us. I would love to see what was on those because I couldn't find the actual reference itself. And I don't think every theater did this. This wasn't like standard operating procedure or anything, but I think- some theaters were like literally printing out cheat sheets so that people could comprehend what the fuck was happening in this film.
1: That's incredible. I had no idea about the movie pamphlet. That's super fun. Yeah. <laughs> also, I like to imagine, yeah, the, the the theaters get the movie and they probably screened it for themselves and so they knew what they were playing. And they're like, this makes no fucking sense. Right. People are going to want their money back. <laughs> they're going to get angry at us. What What can we do? Okay, we're doing a sheet. We're doing a paper sheet. <laughs> well, and counting... There are four available versions of the movie. And this is this blew my mind because I was thinking like, yeah, there's usually like a theatrical and then like a televised or like theatrical extended Blu-ray, right? Right. But this film has the theatrical cut, which aired in theaters in 1984, an Alan Smithy version, a version that was televised mm-hmm. shortly thereafter, and the extended edition, which is much more recent. All of which, like, the theatrical cut was 137 minutes. I think the extended edition is the longest and was 189 minutes. Okay. So that's three hours and nine minutes wow. running time. Okay. And apparently, I saw some angry reviews about this, because a chunk of the footage, like 40 minutes, 30 minutes of the footage, doesn't have any post-production, like there's no effects, visual effects, Uh, so like the Fremen just have normal eyes, (laughs) and apparently, it looks so, like, it just has no polish, so it's really disconcerting, and they're like, I hate this, this is awful. Yeah. So, maybe that gives us pause when we demand (laughs) that Denis Villeneuve gives us the full cut. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Maybe we'll hate it. I don't know. It's it's possible.
0: That's true. That's true.
1: And then to explain Alan Smithy. Right. Right?
0: Yeah. So this is a movie fun fact. Alan Smithy is actually a pseudonym that directors will attach to a movie that they no longer want to be associated with. Right. And Lynch was pissed at the cuts that the studios forced him to make, basically, to chop down his vision, tape it back together. Right. And he disowned some of those versions, like some of the cuts of that film, he doesn't want his name on. So depending on which version you own, which version you're watching, the credits of the film may either say David Lynch or Alan Smithy, because Lynch wanted to disown certain cuts of the film. Yeah. He he just wasn't happy with the product.
1: It's kind of fun. If you hadn't heard of this, there is an entire, like there's a Wikipedia article, obviously, of the like... Dozens of movies between 19, I think 68 or 1970 or so when it was first established by the guild as like a, as a pseudonym, like an official pseudonym for directors to use. And then I think it was officially discontinued in 2000, but there's a long list of movies and like Hellraiser is on it. And I'm like, that's a classic iconic movie. <laughs> and the director's like, absolutely not. Yeah. <laughs> so very interesting. The Alan Smithy thing is so fascinating to me.
0: Yeah, which is funny because this is neither here nor there, but it, I feel like it backfires. It almost draws attention to the fact that you yeah. took your name <laughs> off of it. Yeah. So it has the exact opposite of its intended effect. Instead of erasing your involvement with the film, it makes it a fun fact that podcasters in the 40 years will bring up <laughs> over and over that you yeah. were very much involved with the film and you were ashamed by it and then took your name off of it.
1: <laughs> it's very, again, like... Preschooler peed their pants and then blamed their friend on it yeah, I'm like yeah, oh yeah, yeah. David do you pee your little pants and he's like it was Alan it was, it Alan. was Alan's mini. <laughs> David there's no one named Alan in this class we all know that person doesn't exist stop saying that <laughs> it was Alan's mini.
0: <laughs> <laughs> David okay it was me <laughs>
1: not to equate this massive film <laughs> with it peeing one's pants but. right
0: right <laughs> well, let's actually talk about the film now that it, yeah. it's been through this production of hell and is right. out for the world to see. And you got your little cheat sheet. You're at the movie theater in 1984. Maybe it's Christmas time. You're excited. You're on break from school. How is this film going to play out for you? Yeah. Well, not great <laughs> in short, sure. not great. The film was a major theatrical flop. It yeah. had a $41 million budget and only grossed about thirty point nine million dollars. Yes, yeah. which is that's tough. Which is tough. The critical reception was poor, which seems like an inadequate word. <laughs> yeah. Here are some choice quotes from some critics about *Dune* nineteen eighty four. The first one we want to share is from Roger Ebert. He said that quote: "This movie is a real mess." an incomprehensible, (laughs) ugly, unstructured, pointless (laughs) excursion into the murkier realms of one of the most confusing screenplays of all time, end quote. Okay. And Ebert would go on to eventually call it one of the worst movies of the year. Brutal. Brutal. Yeah. Here's another one. Gene Siskel began his review with, quote, It's physically ugly. It contains at least a dozen gory, gross-out scenes. Some of its special effects are cheap, surprisingly cheap, because this film cost a reported forty to forty-five million dollars. And its story is confusing beyond belief. In case I haven't made myself clear, I hated watching this film. End quote. Wow,
1: love that so much. That's so funny to me.
0: Wow, Gene Sisko went hard. Yeah. I love that. And also, I I identify with that so strongly. My boy, Gene. (laughs) So that's the critical reception of this film. Not great. No. People are going so far as to say they hated watching this film. It did not recoup its production costs. In short, it was a flop. Yeah. In almost every sense of the word. Now, the only saving grace, despite all of this, despite the brutal reception. Sure. It has become a bit of a cult classic in a way. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And as we said earlier, it served to introduce a lot of people to Frank Herbert's story. Yeah. I mean, the book was already a bestseller, it was a sci fi hit, but the movie was the gateway for a lot of folks into the Dune universe. And over the years, it has kind of become this classic within the Dune community.
1: Yeah. I also don't want to discount, like, We're talking about critical reception. We're talking about production issues. But like, if you were in the theater in 1984 and you loved it, hell yeah. Totally. Dope. I think it's, you know, I like art house films. I like art films. I think we've talked about it. I think you're not as much a fan of the like super artsy movies, right?
0: No, not for me. I'm not a big movie person in general. Yeah. Um, And then the weirder they get, the more tuned out I get. Yeah, for sure.
1: Sure. So I I think that also will contribute to things. I know that a number of our listeners do have really fond memories of this movie and prepping to go into talking about it. I think it's worth noting that we're just talking about critical reception and we're going to be talking about our personal opinions. And
0: yeah. Totally. Neither of
1: those things invalidate loving this movie or having a nostalgic twist to it or even loving it for the f- the spectacle that it undeniably is <laughs> like, yeah, uh, it's it is something. Yeah.
0: There's nothing wrong with loving a bad movie. <laughs> yeah. Star Wars episode three is my favorite Star Wars movie. And I watched it hundreds of times as a kid because I had the DVD just on repeat all the time. Is
1: that with Count Dooku?
0: Yeah. Revenge of the Sith. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. Or or what's the one with uh, General Grievous and the Kenobi? Yep, That's episode that three, it? baby. Hell <laughs> the yeah. The best Star Wars movie. <laughs> and yeah. Mace Windu with the purple lightsaber. Right. Exactly. Oh, my God. The Senate room fight where they're chucking
0: chairs at each other. That's that movie, right? Yes. Uh, You're you're naming why the the movie is the best Star Wars movie of all time. Yoda catches the lightning. He catches the lightning. (laughs) It's an incredible film. (laughs) Yeah. Subjectively, because I grew up as a child watching it, and I have a deep attachment to it. Right. And that's okay. Folks (laughs) might feel that way about Dune 1984 as well. I guess what we're saying is, don't let us yuck your yum. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. And, you know, I think on that note, it feels like a good time to take a breather. Sure. Now that we've covered the production of this film, the history, its critical reception. Indeed. Let's take a quick break. But when we come back, we'll dive into how we feel about David Lynch's Dune. So don't go anywhere, dear listener.
1: Welcome back, everybody. We hope you enjoyed your break. (laughs) We've got a lot to talk about.
0: We do indeed. And- For this, we're going to structure it much like we do our sci-fi miniseries episodes. Right. We're going to talk about two things that we liked about David Lynch's film and two things that we disliked. And then we'll wrap up the episode by sharing our favorite scenes. Indeed. So let's start positive, Leo. Sure. I'd love to hear your first thing that you liked about this adaptation. So the first thing
1: that I chose, having just watched it again actually kind of twice because I was taking notes. Uh, I chose world building as my thing. For as many things that this movie got wrong about Frank's universe. There were a few scenes that I really appreciated. Just the attention to detail and the desire to make it feel flushed out. And I think part of this is aided by the fact that this is back in the day when you had 2,000 extras on set. (laughs) Like there were some truly bustling moments and scenes where there were a lot of people and you know, we had scenes where right after arriving on Arrakis soldiers are shown getting their water, like getting their allocation of water. And I was like, that's fucking cool. That's a great little moment. It felt very populated, right? Like the, the bustling Imperial court, the, Uh, And Shaddam having to be like, get the fuck out of here. Like those were good moments that I really appreciated and really did do a pretty good job, in my opinion, of painting the picture of like a populated sci-fi world. Even if it's like hashtag not my dune, it still felt like a vibrant lived in world. Totally. And it's easy to joke about. We did in our coverage of it. But like the spacing guild guy navigator comes in has his little speech out of his goopy little butthole, and then (laughs) is wheeled out of the room and leaves massive puddles of liquid, which then there are two guys with, like, vacuum brooms. And I'm like, that's, like, four small details that did not need to be in the movie. Right. But convince me there was a goopy butthole alien man in this room, like, without a doubt. Right. It's, uh really fun and I also wanted to say that like this is I think one of the major weaknesses of Denis Villeneuve's adaptation like his movie feels like it's just literally the main characters and then one or two side characters sometimes there's a couple of Fremen in the background most of the scenes are very isolated with only a few people present and it feels sterile and it feels very um I don't know. It just lacks that kind of feeling of being lived in.
0: Totally, totally. I mean, there's the shot in the Vilna film where we're flying over Arrakis, over the Shield Wall into Arrakis, and it's empty, and it's like empty. It's like very clearly just like an empty miniature set. You know, no people, no smoke in the distance, no this, no, no vehicles, that, no vehicles, no small, yeah, nothing. You know, it is truly a lifeless Arakeen, Yeah, which is in stark contrast to the way we see it here in Lynch's adaptation, and also the way we see it in the two sci-fi miniseries. Right, totally. I think that's a strength of both of these adaptations is that they make the world feel alive with those small details.
1: Yeah, credit where credit is due. I think that was very well done. What about you? What's the first thing that you liked about this adaptation?
0: So before I say my first thing, I do want to be very clear If it hasn't been clear already in the discussion. Your favorite (laughs) movie.
1: This one's your favorite. This is your favorite.
0: I'm very strongly in the Gene Siskel camp of how I feel about this movie. I dislike it in almost every way. And I had very little good things to say about it. So it was quite tough for me to be like, what are like two, two like big things I can talk about that I really like. That having been said, I did come up with this one. I liked the set design. It's something I didn't notice back when we first watched it a couple years ago when we made that one YouTube video that you can find on the Lord Party channel. I didn't notice how good the set design was the first time we watched it. I was very distracted by basically everything else being horribly (laughs) wrong. Yeah. But this time I was like really looking at the architecture and the props that were littered around the set. And just the aesthetic, and also the diversity of aesthetic. Like you had Castle yeah. Kaladin, you had the Golden Halls of the Emperor. You had these places that have their own identity and have Giddy their own Prime. character. Giddy Felt Prime. like Giddy Prime, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Like you could take the characters out of that scene and just show me like a backdrop, and I'd be like, that's Giddy Prime, that's yeah. That's 100%. You know, like yeah. each space had its own identity in a way where you could instantly identify where you were. Even if the scene just cut to an interior in a room, you'd be like, oh, this room has the aesthetic of Arakeen. Right. I appreciated that. I think that's a very important part of telling a story on the screen that kind of blends into the background. You know, it's one of those things where, like, if the set designer has done their job right, you'll almost never notice they did their job right because it will just blend right into the story and you'll just subconsciously accept this is what the palace looks like golden arches, you know, whatever. Right. I think this movie did that well. The set design, the props, everything here was really top-notch stuff and I think did it in a way where each place felt distinct and each place felt like you were visiting a new part of the universe. Right. And I, I think credit to Lynch and his team in pulling that off here. Yeah. So that was item number one for me. Back to you. What was your second thing that you liked about this movie?
1: Uh, for this one, I went very broad. Um, the bold visual choices and spectacle.
0: Mm. Okay.
1: Now, I think feelings about like lore accuracy and understanding the plot and the, even the, the <laughs> <Story-telling>. barest minimum <laughs> of conveying the story of Dune aside. <laughs> Again, we'll talk about it. I think no one can make the argument that this is a safe movie. This movie takes so many fucking chances (laughs) and is so bold all of the time. And there are some like genuinely incredible moments that impress me like as a visual artist, right? Like as someone who respects that nothing happens on accident, having so many things happening is really a testament to ambition And ambition that is like acted upon by many people all in the same direction for better or for worse. And I think that's worth celebrating. Yeah. I also wanted to give some specific examples. The PlayStation 2 looking shields, as much as we keep teasing them, are so clunky and chunky and fun (laughs) in a way that I legitimately am still floored by in 2023. I'm like, that's fucking crazy.
0: Yeah. Plus it's effects from its time. So we have to kind of give it some grace. It's not 2023 level VFX.
1: Right. And again, they could have made choices that were much easier. You know, they could have just done nothing and then, yo or whatever, like sound effect and then like not hit each other and be like, I can't, can't. Hit him because of the invisible force wave, right, and we're right. like, sure, you know. And Star Trek did it all the fucking time with like effects. I don't know. It's they could have done something boring, and instead they're like, Pew-wee! it's <laughs> this, like insane <laughs> Minecraft Steve right. character. The pendulum of-
0: really swung way the <laughs> other way, but at least it was bold.
1: At least it was bold. That's what I'm saying. Fade Routhers <laughs> coming out of the steam in the fucking speedo oh, and the amount God. of time. That they just spend on him standing there and like breathing and flexing is just great.
0: Right. And the, <laughs> the just... editor's like, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna trim the tape here, and David Lynch is whispering in his ear, like let it linger.
1: Let it linger. We have to cut forty five minutes of this movie, not a fucking second of this clip. <laughs> <laughs> We're keeping every goddamn second of this majesty. <laughs> He told me I don't have to wear their red light or whatever Roxanne lyric. Anyway, yes. <laughs> very, very bold. Even the whole sequence of Paul awakening is the Quisat Haderach and the worms and then the visions and the there's a lot of shit that I don't think fits in Dune, but the visuals really just like impressive considering this is like an 80s movie yeah with with no electricity and one phone right like it, it's like right. impressive. And
0: no spaghetti everyone's going hungry
1: a thousand pounds of spaghetti are gone 15 percent of the cast and crews in the hospital <laughs> i think it's pretty impressive yeah and like all in all summarizing i think it's it's pretty obvious that david lynch had some very bold ideas for what he wanted to do and for what dune should look like And honestly, I'm glad that we got this attempt and not something that was equally inaccurate and boring because like it could have missed the point. It could have been as much of a like white savior story, but it could also have been boring. (laughs) Right. And instead we have battle pugs. We've got we have
0: sting memes. I mean, we We have have sting memes. Yes. I mean, a boring bad Dune film would have been forgotten. We wouldn't even be here talking about it. Right. The only reason we're talking about this film is because of some of these bold decisions it took and because of its cult classic status. Right. I would wager due in part to many of these bold decisions that then became your modern day memes. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I, I absolutely agree with you on this point. I would always prefer bad and bold versus forgettable and boring
1: and nothing's given like bad movies are made all the time with like incredible vfx and bad movies are made all the time with you know that are just not fun like i tried to watch a couple of m night Shyamalan movies recently and could not get through them literally could not was like i don't care about this and it physically hurts me to be engaged in this any longer (laughs) yeah yeah and it's not that i'm just like wow this isn't dune and then i sit back and i enjoy the fact (laughs) that characters are just like like fade Routha bites paul's finger in the middle of their fight and i'm like what, <laughs> what
0: right as a this? dune fan i'm offended as yeah. a moviegoer i'm grossed out but this little <laughs> lizard brain part of me is kind of like weird thing happening on screen <laughs> you know yeah
1: oh good yes that's the way to put it <laughs> I'm like, there's that little scratch, the primordial scratch. I'm like, weird shit's happening. My fight or flight is kicking in? (laughs) Strange. I thought I was just watching a two-dimensional movie, but I think I might be in danger. (laughs) Right. But, okay, that's my second point. Boldness. Yeah. Maybe not good, but it's definitely bold, and I like that. What is your second pick for something that you like?
0: My second pick is a bit of a cop-out because, (laughs) frankly, I had a hard time Coming up with a second thing that you hadn't already covered in your choices, because I agree with both of your choices, and I didn't want to just repeat what you had said, so I'll just say, as like a quick cop-out answer here for the second thing that I liked about this movie, I'm a lover of dogs. All dogs (laughs) are good boys and good girls. Uh So the pugs, as ridiculous as they are, were a welcome addition to this film, and Denny Villeneuve should have had a pug cameo in his adaptation maybe we'll I'm see one still in part two
1: kind of mad about that like <laughs> yeah. it would have been so, such low-hanging fruit to just include a picture of a pug or a... Yeah,
0: like a framed photo of a pug like in the background of a scene right. we don't need like an actual animal on screen yeah just some sort of homage to david lynch's weird decision to have like f- 10 too many bugs on screen like one would have been <laughs> like a, oh remember that funny dog in that one scene right but Straight up battle pug exists, you know, <laughs> yeah. in this film. His oh. choice to really lean into the pugs was, as a dog lover, a good choice. More dogs than everything is my hot take. Indeed. All righty. So yeah. we talked about the things we like. Yeah.
1: <laughs> We've showered this movie with praise, showered it with <laughs>
0: praise. Yeah. Let's now turn the tables and move on to discussing the things we disliked about this film. How will oh. we ever come up with a list?
1: I don't know. I struggled. It was hard. It's a perfect movie.
0: <laughs> While I gather my energies for this section, I'm going to hand the mic to you. What was your first thing you disliked about this movie?
1: Almost every character. <laughs> 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 I'll give you specifics, listeners. And again, I want to reiterate that this is from a Dune lore perspective. And. I say that because I think it's totally valid to appreciate this movie as a fun thing and to love the movie for what it is. And maybe this was an introduction to Dune and that's valid and wonderful. But these are like objectively wrong things about really significant characters that I think in in a lot of ways ruin this as an adaptation. And I'll do my best to move quickly through these. So uh, Duncan has a line about like, may you be protected by the hand of God. And, he, and Paul's like, yeah, hand of God, which was weird because Duncan is not the man of faith. Gurney Halleck is. Yep. Duncan also dies to a random projectile. So bad. he's in the middle of a fight and he gets shot in the head by what even is that? What is, it looks
0: like an, I think it's a, like a nail. Did someone hit him with a nail gun? It,
1: it looked like a nail gun. He got home alone. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and. Not really the way that one of the best fighters in the literal universe would die. Also, canonically not accurate. Right.
0: And also, like, he didn't die during that. Like, I don't know. It's yeah. so inaccurate on some levels. There are more scenes with him yeah. <laughs>
1: in the book. It
0: just was like, I don't know how to,
1: this character, I don't know, kill him Kill him early, I guess. Yeah. Baron Harkonnen, there's oh too much God. to say about him. Um, He is a raving madman. He is disgusting and psychotic. And we've talked about in the Baron Harkin episode how one of the qualities of Baron Harkin is that he, by his nature, as one of the leaders of a great house in the Landsrad, is a politician. Yeah. Is he manipulative, sociopathic, murderous? Yes, he is all of those things. But he is also a member of the great house of the Landsrad. Right. And he cannot be that all the time. His, like, I'm going to like pull out this boy's heart plug and then cackle as I'm watching is so cartoonish that it completely like disarms any legitimate threatening vibes that Baron has. Like, I don't know, Baron, his plans were great in the book. And in this adaptation, he just looks unhinged and this cackling kind of, right. He is the fool to the straight man. Who's not even in the movie. Right.
0: Yeah. I mean, he he had no plan. Well, his motivation was to get the ring or something in this movie. It, he's it, like, it I swore to steal the ring. It's yeah. like, why? It just why? makes no sense. Like, he's just like, oh, this is a rivalry and I want that ring. And the motivations make no sense because so many of the Baron's subtlety is just totally stripped away so that we get this like cartoonish over the top gross character.
1: Yeah, it is just a disrespect to the character that Frank meticulously wrote. Totally. And then you have moments like him spitting on Jessica's face, which I like, even it was like gaslighting me. I'm like, am I forgetting him doing this in the book? That's such a weird thing. So I go to the book and in the book, he even says to her, it's nothing personal, right? Like this is between me and Leto. And then he leaves and it's like, oh, that's almost that. I kind of like that. The villain who's like, listen, it's not about this. It's just, listen, this had to happen. I'm sorry. Have
0: a great life. Oh my God. The spit. So gross. It's wild how off the mark this baron is.
1: It is. Uh which is tough because he's th- like kind of the main antagonist of the movie. Yeah. Uh to get some through some others, Stilgar just isn't in the movie. Nope. You might think he is. You're wrong. You're wrong. Uh James Fenring and Paul's first son are definitely not in the movie. <laughs> They're just <laughs> literally not there. They were like, "Should we include?" And James is kind of a big deal because he was like Paul's first Paul's killed. first go. Uh Shaddam the fourth detaining and decapitating beast Raban is fucking crazy. <laughs> like we hear that beast Raban dies off page. We have no reason to think that sh- that Shaddam the fourth would kill the eldest ward to one of the great houses guys as like a threat. It's very strange and right. really caught me off guard, which felt weird.
0: So weird. Paul
1: and Chani didn't get their son. Right. But that also is strange because then there's like no stakes. Like they're just kind of hooking up at the end of the movie and there's no Chani as a character doesn't really exist either, uh, which is tough. <laughs> and yeah. then I think the most egregious thing, and this is really the thing that is the most unforgivable, yep, is that Paul Muad'Dib Atreides is in this movie a hero.
0: <laughs> Jesus Christ. Here's
1: the quote. Muad'Dib had become the hand of God, fulfilling Fremen prophecy. Where there was war, Muad'Dib would now bring peace. Where there was hatred, Muad'Dib would bring love. Wrong. <laughs> End quote. And it sounds like uh, Lynch just was like, no. Right. No, I don't like that central core theme. It's the exact like,
0: opposite, actually. <laughs> yeah, like
1: he's not a hero. You shouldn't he literally got it exactly wrong. Like that sentence times negative one is Paul. And yet that somehow we have that in the movie. (laughs) I would come out of this movie like, Oh yeah, that white man saved those. (laughs) It's so exactly not what Frank Herbert intended. And it just blows my mind. Um, So completely wrong. Anyway, in summary, there are thousands of little adjustments here and there. And while some of them might have technically worked, this is a standalone work of fiction. This is a standalone thing. You don't say you have to read this book and then come watch this movie or watch this movie and then you have to, pinky promise, go read the book. Right. That's not happening. So for audiences to sit down in the theater and to watch this, all of the characters I mentioned, plus a bunch others that I'm not going to even talk about, are just not at all true to the characters in the book. And would leave you with such a twisted understanding of some of the elements in the Dune universe that I almost think it's like damage that has to be undone later by reading the book or whatever. Totally. And the movie's not good enough to stand on its own. Like, I enjoy it as a work of visual art, but like, did you ever watch um, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest?
0: No, I haven't seen that.
1: It's a, I mean, it's a phenomenal book. The movie follows a different main character. <laughs> they were like, they were like, we're just going to tell... And it works so well. I mean, part of it's Jack Nicholson's, like, the the guy, and he's amazing. But still, it's an example, in my opinion, of, like, books and movies are different mediums, and if you're adapting it, be bold with how you decide to adapt it. Might not work following that character, so follow this character. Who the fuck cares? It's a movie. It's not the book. And it needs to work as a movie before it works as an adaptation, I think. And this works as neither. (laughs) 100%. And this doesn't work as either, in my opinion. So anyway, well said. So that's <laughs> that's my first, is that my first? That is my first <laughs> dislike. I feel like I've been talking for three hours. That was my it. first dislike. What's your first dislike?
0: <laughs> oh, man. Well, I also went big and broad. And actually, this ties in nicely with the great point you just made about this movie not being able to stand even on its own, let alone as an adaptation of the book. I don't even think this is Dune. Like this movie did not adapt Frank Herbert's Dune. It borrowed some character names and some ideas and some general plot points, but it did not adapt the core and essence of this book. It utterly ignored or completely twisted so many of the themes of Frank's story that like in my eyes, like this is not even an adaptation of the book. This is not Dune. It's just like fan fiction. Right. You already made the point about Paul being a hero at the end, right? The rainfall coming down and him being like the messianic hero that saves Arrakis. He saves doesn't all the, need
1: the sound gun. The sound gun. He can gun. Roda on all in his own. <laughs> My
0: name is a killing word. All of that is like, I simply can't emphasize this enough. That is all literally... The polar opposite of Frank's warning against charismatic leaders. Uh-huh. <laughs> this whole movie is like, Isn't Paul Atreides awesome? His name isn't is a he killing a charismatic word. Charismatic leader. <laughs> He's a charismatic leader. We love this guy. Yeah. The exact opposite of Frank's big theme. <laughs> like one of the yeah. themes. You know, we always talk like core pillars of Dune that hold up the story. Charismatic leaders, Frank's warning against it is one of those pillars. That pillar Utterly fucking ignored in this movie. <laughs> Another big theme is the fact that everyone in this film is carrying like rifles and machine guns and like Gatling guns and whatever, despite the fact that they show shields, right? They shield yeah. Arakeen, they have the personal PS2 shields. There's like whole <laughs> uh-huh. scenes about sh- fucking shields. Yeah. Yui takes down the shield. But as we know, projectiles and (laughs) shields don't get along well No, and are utterly useless. So who the fuck are you shooting at with that rifle when everyone is shielded up? It makes no sense on like, okay, so that's like a deep cut lore level. It makes no sense. I think on a big picture thematic sense, the sound guns, the way there's so much technology in this adaptation, it's, again, the opposite of Frank's intentions around humanity's relationship with tech after the butlerian jihad as we know it in the book right right there's a reason there is not a lot of technology in frank's
1: story yeah there's a reason everyone is like martial artists and swordsmen right in dune because it was it all went back to like what can i do with my body and my person
0: exactly exactly it's about enhancing the human rather than enhancing the cpu None of that is present in this. And in fact, like, you know, the fusro Da guns, fucking sound guns are like the MacGuffin of this movie that like changed the game for everyone or whatever. It's utterly wrong. Once again, ignoring a major theme in Frank's story. Right. The other thing that's ignored is basically all of the religious stuff, right? Religion is so deeply rooted in the Dune saga. Right. And most of it is wiped from this film. No missionaria protectiva. We don't hear Elisa Al-Gaib. There's no religious manipulation of the Fremen. There's no mention of the jihad in Paul's name that'll wash over the galaxy in the future. Right. All of that is just like super watered down, washed down to basically be an Anakin Skywalker prophecy of a savior and nothing well, it's more.
1: Even, it's even worse than that because it's the missionaria protectiva that demonstrates how cynical everything is. Because yes. they're they're like, we have this this um the legend of the Lisan al gaib the legend of Muadib. And they say, This is our legend. And Paul and Jessica in an Ornithopter go, Yeah, so we planted these legends here, and it's all manipulation. Yep. And Paul's like, Wow, that's fucked up, and she's like, Yeah. Like it's it's terrible because it is taking out the religious manipulation element of it makes it literal he is the more spoken messiah and is that is literally antithetical that is literally exactly opposite frank to is saying he,
0: paul is not a messiah he is manufactured to be one right in this movie when you take out all the religion and then make rain fall at the end <laughs> yeah, he yeah, literally he's, is he's, the messiah
1: he's god <laughs> <laughs> i don't I, I did it i adapted the book what do you mean he's god
0: yeah oh my he's, god
1: jesus isn't that yeah, That's pretty, that's good. I did fifth five drafts. We're good. We're Up good.
0: is down, white is black. <laughs> yeah. Another core pillar of Frank's story that is utterly ignored in this film is any in-depth exploration of Paul's visions. Do we have visions? Yes. Does it get trippy and weird? Yes. That's it. That's like the lip service we get to this whole concept of prescience, which underpins the whole Dune saga. Yeah. Ideas of fate, destiny, free will, explorations of the future, the past. None of that matters in this movie. None of that is explored in this movie. Those are the reasons many people love Dune. Like, those are the reasons I love Dune, that we're exploring these big ideas. All of that, again, watered down, washed down to just be some, like, quirky-ass acid trips in a couple of scenes. So to wrap up my first point here on why I think this movie is basically not even an adaptation of Dune. Those core pillars, charismatic leaders, relationship with technology, religious themes, themes about fate and predestination. All of that being basically wiped away in this film makes this not Dune in my eyes. And I'll even take this further and say... It's pretty damn clear to me that Lynch didn't understand Dune and perhaps had little to no interest in actually doing justice to any of the philosophical, political, religious ideas that Frank was exploring in his original work. Right. I think David Lynch just wanted to use this sci-fi property as a template for some quirky, barely comprehensible acid trip of a fucking movie idea he had and... Home run, buddy. You did it. He succeeded (laughs) if that was the goal because it sure as hell seems like it because he misunderstood basically every aspect of Dune except for the character names. So that's my first big thing that I disliked about the film. Back to you, though. What's item number two on your list of things you disliked?
1: Well, this one gets a little bit more lore-heavy, but I think that's also why I want to stress that like our vehement dislike of this is based really on years now of talking about Dune stuff and like having a deep appreciation for this world that Frank built because the thing that I wanted to say now is about the Bene Gesserit powers and to be clear this is a monumental shift from the book and I know like most of our listeners y'all know this like this is not news to you if you rewatch Dune uh, David Lynch's film you will notice the things that I notice but To be clear, the Bene Gesserit in this movie are portrayed as psychics with telepathic abilities. (laughs) And I was shocked. I was just legitimately like, what is happening? Like Shaddam in probably like one of the first scenes is like, hey, Moheim, you have to leave the room, but I want you to use your telepathy the whole time. I'm going to have a secret (laughs) meeting, better use your telepathy and I was like, oh, that's kind of funny. His misunderstanding from the end of the book is like here. Sure. And she's like, you got it, boss. I'll use telepathy the oh whole time. And I was like, oh, she's like bluffing. What's happening? And then she goes outside and uses her telepathy <laughs> to listen in. And I was like, what? <laughs> what? 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 What is in what world? That's not a that never happens. And then during the Paul uh, Gamjabar test, she sees Chani <laughs> and she's like, Who's that? And I'm like, What the fuck do you mean, who's that? How did you know? Huh. You can't see that. That's not a thing. Truthsayers read like people's pulses and shit using attention to detail, not <laughs> like reading their minds. Right. So this telepathy problem is two pronged, I think. Now, first of all, Bene Gesserit skills are kind of hard to wrap your head around, right? Like, truth-saying, weird in combat, even, uh, like, metabolic control, abilities to, like, extend your own lifetime, and other memories all feel like very almost fantasy abilities, right? Like, they sound like witches, hence their in-universe nickname. But Frank is very careful in describing how they threw literally tens of thousands of years came to know how to do this stuff and how it's a very human thing to do right so there's that side of it you are already making something that is pretty confusing way more confusing it also begs the question of like why these clearly telepathic psychic characters aren't using this shit all the time and in any of the the further narratives introduces some like very real problems mechanically if your characters can just read each other's minds and see chani or see then why aren't they and why are there ever why are they surprised by things and why are they caught off guard by anything like you're introducing something a new thing that cannot exist for the plot to go the way that it does a lot of the time yep and then the other thing that really i think was a dropped ball was the weirding combat which again is confusing. Like the fact that they can move faster than normally they'd be able to because they envision that they are in a new place. Like, yeah, that's tough. And I remember I couldn't find the exact quote, but at some point, David Lynch said something like audiences don't want to watch sand karate or whatever, like desert karate.
0: And I'm like, for the well, record we do, but okay. fucking false. <laughs> yeah. False. <laughs> like,
1: you don't know how to do fight scenes. Just say that. But like, he kind of it feels like it. He wanted it both ways because Jessica overpowers Stilgar, right? And I rewatched that scene a few times. She just grabs his throat. <laughs> <laughs> Paul's like, huh, "Gotta get out of here!" and he and he like runs away. Yeah, she just grabs Stilgar's throat and then holds him from behind. Amazing, and he's like, "Ah, she beat the strongest of us." she has the weirding way and i'm like oh so the weirding way is like a hand-to-hand combat thing right and she's like yes and we'll teach you the weirding way and he's like cool and then they get to wherever and she's like jokes on you the weirding way is guns <laughs> and it's like very weird wait, wait 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 if it's guns fucking sure then how did you
0: do that before? You didn't have a sound gun. It's not even internally consistent with itself. <laughs> no. You know, let alone the book. Like, forget the book for a minute. It makes yeah. no sense in the movie.
1: In the movie. She's like, we'll teach you. And then it's like, among other things, it's a gun. <laughs> and then My God. They never show you what other things. It's just it's just a sound gun. Yeah. and You know, uh, I, I do
0: like how <laughs> she, you know, put him in a little chokehold grabbed him by the neck because that is canon um that's exactly true. how Leto liked it in bed so she would be very good at that you know
1: she's she's skilled at submitting men with a <laughs> neck crab. it's true it's it's actually one of the first lessons in seducing men they're like we love muscle mommies and she's like i'm a certified muscle mommy <laughs> right right you want a tall woman was always like you?
0: give me that weirding way baby <laughs> right here right here
1: yeah <laughs> Sound guns, <laughs> Fucking weird. And I just want to wrap up by saying it really feels like David Lynch had no clue at all what the Benny Gesserit could do. Yep. And just kind of gave them like whatever powers they needed to have at any given time. Uh, gave them things that they explicitly say we don't have that. And uh, in general, I think all of this is inexcusable because across his five scripts, to be clear, Frank Herbert was around. Frank Herbert was alive. You could call him. And- you could fucking call him. You could also read Dune again. Just read the book again. <laughs> this is eighty-four. Dune Messiah was out. Children of Dune was out. You could read all three books and have a very Children of Dune explores so much about what the Benny Joseph can right. and can't in, do. In fact, you should
0: read all, all of the books out at the time. Like that's part of your Probably. homework if you're taking yeah. on this adaptation. It would read take the like fucking a encyclopedia. Month. Like it's that's your job, <laughs> dude, to understand this before you adapt it.
1: It's just, it's beyond comprehension. And honestly, I think it just comes down to, he he didn't, he clearly didn't. And that is really hard to defend. I yep. cannot imagine if you gave me any kind of IP with any kind of following, I would do the most. Right, <laughs> like I would I'd do, be so stressed, yeah. Yeah, and he went through five drafts and he couldn't make it internally consistent. That's also just bad script writing. Right. Like that's just bad filmmaking. So- yeah, absolutely. Anyway, we're talking in circles at this point. So what is? uh, that's my second pick. What is your second pick for a thing you don't like?
0: My second pick is that the Harkonnens are grotesque to the point of parody.
1: Yeah, agreed.
0: And parody is a critique I could say for this whole film, actually. (laughs) But the Harkonnens in particular, to kind of zoom in here, every creative decision about the Harkonnens ranges anywhere from just stupid too outright problematic and it's all so grotesque and over the top that it's actually comical like there are genuine laugh out loud moments in this movie yeah because it's unintentionally ridiculous Yep, we talked about the baron at length earlier but not an ounce of nuance exists within house harkonnen within the baron or the house at large we're missing major scenes that flesh out the antagonists of this story there's no gladiator scene there's no fade Rotha assassination attempt on the baron right there's no them cutting a deal plotting for the golden lion throne like like there's no depth at all to these harkonnens they're just comically ridiculous villains
1: right
0: it's impossible to take anything about house harkonnen seriously in this film because you're so distracted by how ridiculous all of it is
1: right agreed all righty
0: <laughs> well all of our feelings having been released it does feel good to kind of that was therapeutic to kind of just like <sighs> cathartic cathartic yeah. to yeah get all of those uh, angry thoughts out i feel like i can talk to my parents again <laughs> just... <laughs> jesus
1: just kidding we have a great relationship <laughs>
0: <laughs> let's end the episode today on a more positive note we'd yeah. like to wrap up by sharing our favorite scenes in these episodes. So I'm curious, Leo, did you have a favorite scene from David Lynch's Dune? No. <laughs> <laughs> no.
1: <laughs> I thought about it too. I was like, Oh man. I got to have one, but like genuinely I had a little bit of a problem, like, like kind of a, a, a universe breaking problem with almost every scene in the movie. So I really struggle to choose one. So instead of saying just like the scene that I liked, I I wanted to shout out kind of three specific details that I, as far as I can tell, are added to Frank's universe, but are so in line with Frank's universe that I think they're worth celebrating. Yeah. The first is that the guild literally bullies the emperor. And I appreciate that because, in reality, with their monopoly over all space travel that like unified the Empire, yeah, they've got that much sway. They can swing their guild dick around all they want, and no one can stop them. So I appreciated that in these scenes. They said stuff that they didn't say in the books. And I was like, yeah, that's more accurate. That's cool. I dig that. I also love that Dr. Yui gets a message from the Harkonnens and he finds the message inside of a dead Harkonnens spy. Ugh. That's so fucking cool. Are you kidding me? <laughs> That's so, and it's also very Harkonnens. Baron Harkonnens. I don't think he's the laughing maniacal sociopath he is in this movie, but he absolutely would implant some Shiga wire into someone's body and then send them to deliver a message. Worst case scenario, they die. Yui has to like come up with an excuse to look at the body finds the implant fucking amazing I think that's an in universe like very clever idea and Mm. I really enjoyed that and then finally any of the scenes with pugs yes (laughs) to wrap up any of the scenes with pugs I think similar to show me where in the rule book dogs can't play basketball I think show me in the filmmaking rule book where I can't add pugs or corgis or uh burmese bernice mountain bucks, whatever the bernice I, yeah. bernice uh irish wolfhounds add dogs to movies F- fucking why not do it amen anyway so that's my that's my point um what about you what's your favorite scene from this, uh,
0: this um so i followed the rules leo and i picked one Shit, i keep forgetting uh. to do that <laughs> <laughs> So, Where in the rules does it say <laughs> a pug
1: can't write my script all right more dogs
0: on this podcast <laughs> so for me i also of course had a very tough time picking a favorite scene because most of them i didn't like but i will say i'm a sucker for this scene i've said this before i said it in our Villeneuve deep dive i said it in our sci-fi miniseries episodes but the spice harvester scene the first time we see the worm yeah, the rescue yeah. It's just impossible to make this scene not feel epic and cool. And the film does manage to uh, not fuck that up miraculously. It's the first time we experience the desert. The first time we sort of see a worm, right? This terrifying Mm -hmm. experience with the great sandworms of Arrakis that we've only heard about thus far. I loved it. And this film managed to not fumble the ball on this one and it still managed to make it feel cool and epic like genuinely the harvester getting swallowed up by the worm was a cool moment and i was like yeah hell yeah that's so awesome obviously most of the credit for this scene goes to frank himself because he wrote a dope chapter but tip of the hat to the lynch team for sticking to uh that chapter somewhat and making it still feel epic and cool and making that yeah. first interaction with the giant sandworm as awesome as it is on the page. Hell yeah. It was cool. It was cool. Was cool. Yeah. Again, they they got the epic feel of it and, and that's important for that scene. And it's such a good scene. Such a great and chapter, such a good scene.
1: Here's a production behind the scenes thing you might not know. It looks like a sandworm.
0: Uh-huh. It's
1: a series of pugs. <laughs> 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 it's tied together. <laughs> <laughs> kind of going through the sand. <laughs> yeah. And actually, there are some scenes where it looks like it's Sting, Pugs in a human suit. Oh. <laughs> and also, the Pug that was sitting on Paul's lap in the Highliner, yeah. that's actually Sting in a Pug suit. <laughs> <laughs> really heavy that's why yeah that's why he was sitting furthest from camera because he was like yeah. sweating as much as i wow. am right now.
0: <laughs> I'll, I'll have to watch real close on the next yeah. rewatch you know try and find the <laughs> zipper to this suit you go
1: back and you watch and it's just obviously sting, <laughs> sting you're like, holy shit
0: <laughs> holy shit i didn't, shit, notice, I didn't notice it whoa oh not a pug what that's an actor sting.
1: what an actor he right. really sold that i want
0: an emmy for this
1: <laughs> give him an oscar best pug <laughs> in a motion picture film no. <laughs>
0: best pug <laughs> well friends there is no real ending it's just the place where you stop the recording but this podcast is always one step beyond logic so help spread the word of muadib and leave us a review on apple podcasts and spotify and be sure to check out the other shows on the Lord party podcast network on loreparty.com You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at lore underscore party. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, whoever controls the podcast controls the universe. We'll see you on the Golden Pack.